I have a great guest on the podcast today, former WWE, ECW, and WCW. And he was also in Japan, Puerto Rico. He was all over the world. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Mr. Bill DeMott, how are you doing, sir? Hey, man. How you doing, brother? Good to see you. Good to see you, man. How's things? What's the last year been like? It's in Florida, so it's it's. I'm in Florida, so it's hot. Yeah, it, it's hot. And you forgot to mention my my least favorite place in the whole world. And no offense to the to the workers there, but I spent three years in Mexico too. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I kind of left Mexico out, but that was by accident more than oh, anything. Oh, well, you were smarter than I was because I still remember it. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> b- b- before you were on the TV screens. You were all over the world anyway, we uh, say in Mexico, Puerto Rico, yeah. Japan. What was that experience like being all over the world and being away from home and family? Well, I, you know, um, you know, when I got started, I, I didn't expect any of that to happen. You know, I, I started in New York um, back in 1988 and, you know, just getting used to that little independent circuit in the Northeast and seeing guys and I didn't, you know, you knew that wrestling was a big thing on TV, but I didn't, you know, I never thought I'd be one of those guys. So when opportunities came and, you know, first it was, uh, I did a couple of uh, tours to Europe and, and things like that. And then I went to Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico turned to Japan and Mexico. And, and, and that turned into, uh, and then the ECW was in there right in that time. And then all of a sudden WCW showed up. So I never thought I'd be a TV, you know, superstar whatever they're called now so but you know it's the same as being on the road here you know 300 days a year you were gone three and five weeks stints at a time to japan and you'd come home for like four or five days in between then it was off to three weeks to mexico and then it was home for four days and then it was you know back to three to five weeks in japan and stuff so that schedule I, i guess by the time i got to wcw i was really used to it you know so the only people that affected, unfortunately, and I think I think you probably hear this a lot from the guys and the girls that are on the road, is it affected the family more than affected me, you know? Yeah. Because you miss so much. You miss so much stuff. You miss, like, birthdays and special occasions and things and, like that. And dance recitals and baseball games and, you know, all the things that are important that you don't want to miss. So but what was the, it? the business has changed so much now for these cats. Now there's FaceTime and these smartphones and you can literally, and, and this thing that we're on right now, you know, there was no internet. There was none of this stuff when, you know, when I was going. So it's, it, I think it's a lot easier for, for the, the men and women now when they're, they're away from home because at any minute you can tune right back in, you know? Yeah. You said you didn't really enjoy working in Mexico, but I'd imagine from people I talked to, you probably enjoyed working in Japan. What was it like working there? I, I I didn't mind. I loved working in Mexico. I didn't like living there. I mean, okay. Other than than wrestling five days a week, and that's where you really you know get your chops going because you were going twenty five, thirty five, forty five minutes a night. You know, everything was a, a tag match and three finishes with three different guys, and you know, trying to get all this stuff in. So I didn't mind the work. I got a big education in Mexico, but that it was just. And at that time, it was brutal. The travel was brutal. And, and you know, I literally rode on goat buses and chicken buses and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I love Japan. I thought Japan was um, – I always thought I was going to end my career there because I I appreciated the the culture, just the area. I, I fell in love with that country. And 
and the work was my style. It was more, you know, it was a little more snug. The believability was there. And that's, you know, and again, that's where I cut my teeth. So I really, I really was hoping that when the time came, I think if we all had our choice of what to do, I, I wanted to finish off in Japan, but I, w I was a big fan of it. It's still a big fan of that. that yeah. And a lot of, yeah, a lot of people refer to the audience over there as probably the most respectful audience in the world oh, as well. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, you have that? to learn, you know, because they're and, and I don't know what it's like now, but I imagine still pretty close. They were so silent until something happened. It wasn't like your your wrestling fans here in the States where everything's a, a pop and they're trying to pop themselves and get involved. Those yeah. fans waited for you to do your thing and and that big spectacular moment. And then when you did, they let you know it and once you got used to that, accustomed to that, your work changed and your style changed. And it was really – and the, the fans were great all the time. Were you hitting the moonsaults over in Japan? Yeah, that's that's where I did it. And um, I, I was told early on that I should have never have done it because they'd expect it every night. And I'm thinking, well, every night for three weeks, and it turned out to be every night for the next 30 years. So it was uh, – it took its toll. That's one of the most memorable things I remember from you because back in here in Ireland, uh, my first experience of watching television and wrestling was WCW, and I was about nine at the time. And I remember seeing you as Hugh Morris, and it was just yeah. the look with the beard and the the colorful outfits and stuff like that. What was WCW like to work in? It was, it, you know, I loved it because, you know, there were guys there that I watched coming into the business. So, you know, I'm starting to rub elbows with all these, these legitimate legends and superstars. And it was weird in the beginning because when I got there, they told me, you're not going to do anything you did in Japan or Mexico. Okay. And I was, you know, at, at six two, three 350 pounds, I was doing things that the cruiserweights were doing. Yeah. And they said, don't do that anymore. You're going to be a punch kick guy. And we want you to, you know, beat people up. And I said, okay. So it was, in the beginning, it was kind of like, oh, man, I really want to do some of my my cool stuff. And then I – but I understood it. You know, I understood it very quickly um, that – save it for certain times. But my finish always stayed, and I got to do some things, you know, definitely in live events and things like that. But uh, I thought WCW was great, and I was glad I got in there when I did and, you know, finished finished with the company the way I did, you know. When you came to WCW, had you met a lot of the guys over in Japan working as well? No, I, I met a couple of the guys, you know, in passing. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where I met Kevin Sullivan, and he was the one who pulled me into WCW. Um, he, you know, we did a couple tours together. He was, um, I don't know how to say, it. I guess he was a fan of my work for a bigger guy. And so when the, when the time opened up, he 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 had called me, reached out, and said. I want you to come to Macon, Georgia. I got the book, and do you want to work for me? And like, yeah, yeah. So, so that's how so that happened. Was Kevin writing a lot of your storylines then as well? They they gave me um, when I walked in. They gave me an open book to try to learn who I was and let people, you know, help whatever character that was. Because in Japan and Mexico, there wasn't a lot of talking and promos and stuff. So while I was while I was okay in the ring, can he can he talk? Can, what's the character going to be? So I think I came in as the man of question because they weren't sure what they wanted to do with me. Then I did the laugh by accident. So the laugh took its own life on. And then they said, okay, if we can combine all that stuff, we're going to call you humorous, which turned into humorous. And then, uh -huh. yeah. So I was, and that's why they had to put the laughing man 
Hugh Morris because originally my name was Humorous. But all the announcers said Hugh Morris. They made it into two words, you know. So they put the laughing man in there, and that's that's how it came to be. Didn't know that. That's how that came about. Yeah. And you were also the first man to put Goldberg over. Yeah, man. I, I, you know, you look back at a 30-year career and you go, okay, what am I known for? Okay, tough enough. Yeah. Um, the invasion for guys who were around in that day and and the WC then the misfits and things, but the biggest thing I'm known for, and everybody wants to know what was it like? And it was the same as any other match. No one knew that, that Bill was going to be who he, who he turned out to be. I mean, that was his first match. You know, he'd been training. He'd been, he's studying a student of the game. And, and he, I think even the office and, and all the, the books and, you know, the video packages they've done, I, uh, everybody said the same thing. They weren't sure what they were going to do with him. They just knew he had a look and he was athletic and his football background and he wanted to be out there. So to be the first guy out there, you know, a lot of people go, oh, you know, I had the, you know, I was starting to climb the ladder and then I, no, it's, it was great. And look, so if I'm in history, in the history books for being part of Bill Goldberg's story, cool. Yeah. And from, from then, then into WWE, how did that happen or how did that contact come about? Well, they, you know, in, in Panama City, when we got there, um, you saw the you saw the WWE signs on a lot of the dressing room doors. Mm -hmm. And by that time, we had heard so many people were going to buy the company. And it was Coca-Cola and AOL and this one and that one. And Turner didn't Turner was getting rid of it. And so you really didn't know what to believe. Well, in comes they actually they were actually there. Bruce Pritchard and Shane McMahon. I think it was Jerry Briscoe. And, and I think Pat was there. Pat Patterson. And they came in and said, "Yeah, guys, we're taking over, and this is the this is the show, and we're going live on Raw." So a lot of a lot of the guys scrambled because they had burned some bridges with Vince. A lot of us were thinking, "Okay, where do we go now?" And I never once thought I would be picked up. So I thought I was going back to Japan. I thought I'd have to start making contacts when I got home the next day from uh, Nitro. And lo and behold, I was I, I got home, and two days later, John Laurinaitis, who was now working for WWE with Jim Ross. He called me and said, "Hey, Billy, they want you. What do you think?" Oh, uh, wow. yeah. I'm. I'm gonna. You know, a lot of people. I guess now they talk about well, there's other places to go. But if you were a fan of the business back then, you wanted to work for the WWF in some way, shape, or form. Even if you never stayed there, you wanted. That's when you knew you made it. You know, in wrestling, that's what a lot of kids dreamed of. You know, and then you had options of territories, but the territories were gone. It was WCW, ECW was gone. It was just the WWF and WCW. So when they called and said, hey, you're going to be one of 10 guys they're keeping, I went, wow. And yeah. then for the better part of the next 16 years or whatever it was, I was part of the WWF, which WWE. Was it, uh, what was the atmosphere like? Because you said that you just found out on the day that they had taken over. I'd say it must have been a shock in the locker room. Yeah, I think a lot of people still didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. um, some of the guys that were veteran guys were like, I don't care what they do. I got, you know, a lot of guys then had guaranteed money. So they knew they weren't getting fired. And even if they got fired, they had to pay their contracts. Yeah. So a lot of guys were worried. The younger guys were like, oh, what do we do now? And then the, the mid-card guys were like, they're trying to figure out where they stood with the, with the company. But I was fortunate enough where Shane McMahon talked to me that night. Uh, let me know that they'd been watching me, which was very cool to hear. Um, and I had a good good rapport with everybody right from Jump Street. So 
the atmosphere was different all, all night long. A lot of people were in disbelief. A lot of people were unhappy. A lot of people were sad because this was truly the end of WCW. Crazy. Yeah. And after after wrestling for a couple of years in WWE, um, Tough Enough came about. And that was due to an, an accident you had at the time, but they still wanted you to continue on the program. Is that correct? No, that was a, that was one of the one of the I I guess stories that was told. Yeah. I was wor- we were working. In, I forget where the TV was, and um, uh, John Gaborik big approached me and said that Al Snow talked to you yet. And Al Snow pulled me aside and said, "Hey, we, we you know we'd like to know if you'd like to join the Tough Enough uh, crew because I was always in the ring. I was always doing something. You know, I was always." working out with the younger guys or the, or the newer guys. And I always wanted to be fresh. So even if I wasn't on TV, I was in the ring and, and I always worked the live events and I was fortunate enough to do that. So when they brought me on, they said, yeah, this is what we'd like to do. And we want you to join us. So I said, sure. It was another opportunity. The thing that, that was odd for me was they, they said, okay, and you're going to be off the road for the next three and a half months or whatever it is, because you're going to live out in California and shoot this show. So that was a little bit of a, a shock in the beginning, but that tough enough for me took off a whole new chapter in my career. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I think, I think at the time, um, because I had a motorcycle accident and I think people, you know, it, it was all, I mean, there were like five people who knew about it. And what had happened is I just got road and I tore my hamstring. Okay. But when on the internet, it said, Bill Ma was in a motorcycle accident. And he's not working. All, I'm like, Holy cow. Yeah, but so that's no, I was still working and everything, but it was. Uh, so that is that's fake news that I've sourced for my podcast. So I need to do a bit more research. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little. It depends on who you talk to, but the the honest story was I was on the road at the time, and and they asked me if I wanted to uh, join it. The first one was Taz, the first season. I think the second season was Bob Holly and Chavo, and then they came and said, "Hey, would you like to come and do this?" I'm like, sure, and I don't think anybody understood or realized what it would turn into and then i was part of the tough enough thing from then on how how much of it was like i know you were fitting what was it eight episodes per series yeah something like that yeah Yeah. and you're trying to fit into an hour with ad breaks you're talking 40 minutes so an an average episode then how long over time would that be filmed would it be two days three days one day. We didn't break it into episodes. We shot six and seven days a week for 10, 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, okay. and back then we were reality TV. There was no scripts. There was no nobody going, okay, now we need Al to do this and Bill jumps in the pool and everybody's happy. No, they, they filmed us. They mic'd us up and whatever we did, we did. And yeah. they filmed it and they turned it into a TV show. But we seven, you know, for, and especially for the trainers, seven days a week, 10 and 12 hours a day. And then at the end, that was the culture shock for me was watching the finished product and going, they missed so much of what we've done, Yeah, but you know, it was for TV. So that was another, for me, that was a huge learning, learning curve of what they actually used, you know, for the whole show. But we, we did, they, they have enough just from the third season I was in, they had enough for four shows. Mm. you know four complete seasons so it was you know when when you say that it was kind of real do you think that's spilt over in that kind of infamous tough enough moment that people still talk about with daniel pewter and and kurt angle 
Well, the, so that was years after, right? But yeah. it, it, it was that thing, again, nobody knew what was going to happen. And I don't think anybody, I think everybody was waiting for Daniel to be more respectful of Kurt. Yeah. But the one thing that Daniel did better than anyone else was he knew when he was on, he was going to make the most of his opportunity. So even if he got cut or, or let go or whatever, they tossed him out of the building, he got the best of Kurt Angle on that thing. Yeah. So he he proved that he was there to do something, and that you know he was he could market himself. That was the the biggest thing that Daniel had was he could mar he could handle himself. He was a great athlete, but he could market himself. So he took full advantage of of the opportunity with with Kurt and all the physical stuff was a hundred percent no nonsense. Let's see what happens. And uh, sometimes it worked out to where you know the young kids got taught a lesson, and sometimes the kids taught everybody else a lesson. Who do you think was the most all-round athlete that you had on Tough Enough through all the seasons? The best all-around athlete, not yeah. character or anything, best athlete? Yeah, just the athlete. The best all-around athlete, in my opinion, still John Morrison. Yeah. Still still to this day. He came in. He was uh, flipping, flying, short-haired, athletic, slim build, who's put on all that great muscle to him. He's become a great character uh loves the business um but there were so many guys and girls that turned into these superstars and we always said the winner's never going to be great and i think john you know maven won and maven had a short career but john won and john's had the longest career the the best losers we've ever had are the miz mm -hmm. doc gallows molina i mean the, the it, ryback the boogeyman. What's that? The boogeyman. The, it goes on yeah. and on. So we got so many great people out of the show, and that we tried to tell them it's not, and we tried to enforce that every day. It's not about trying to just to win this competition. You're trying to get your foot in the door. You know, Matty Capitelli. That was the best season for me. I thought yeah. season three was the best season. Um. So. Do you take for? Yeah, I'm sorry. To answer your question, I, yeah. I think John Morrison is the best all-around athlete we ever had. Yeah. Do you think from your work on that show um, as a trainer, like, were you coming across as yourself? Like, because I know, like, you were kind of, you were taking no nonsense and you were just telling them how it was. Is that how you train? Yeah, I. but I always say it's, you know, when that red light is on, it's always times 10. So yeah. it's absolutely my my direction. I, I'm pretty no nonsense with training. I'm always honest. I try to be direct. Um, but that you know, and a lot of people didn't understand the difference between Bill Demont, the tough enough guy they saw on TV, and Bill Demont, the trainer. So they came in. You know, when when guys and girls met me outside of Tough Enough, they were already scared. Yeah, scared, weary of me because they're like, "Oh no, it's that guy." Mm -hmm. And what they didn't understand is that during that show, it wasn't our time to get to know each other. We were both there for a reason. And my boss specifically, my boss, the red light is on. We want Bill DeMott, that guy. And that's what I did. Yeah. Do you think that obviously opened the door then into the Deep South Wrestling and onto the NXT and things like that for you as a trainer? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think um, – I think doing that and, you know, because all eyes are on you when you're doing that as well. So, you know, we weren't off on an island somewhere while everybody else was still, still touring the world wrestling. 
we had a lot of eyes on us and it became like, wow, we, that, that guy is real and we can use, you know, if we can bring that to our developmental at the time, it was OBW in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And I used to go to Cincinnati a lot, especially when they first hired us, me and dreamer and Raven and, and guys like they weren't using crash Holly. We'd go and spend a month at a time in, in, uh, Cincinnati and work with Les Thatcher. And I love training with guys. So that just became the progression of my career. And then after, you know, I broke my neck in 03, I took over a commentating position. Yeah. And I did, I did that for a year with Josh, who's gone on to be legendary now, in my opinion, in, in commentating and, and, and calling the shows. And then it turned into, hey, do you want to go down and check out this system and see what it is and what can we do to fix it or make it better or, or get them further along. And that was just the progression for me. So yeah, tough enough just gave me another Avenue to continue in, in the business. Yeah. When you came back into the WWE in 2011 to be a trainer again, what, what was the biggest changes you found, if any, from the company that you'd left? Well, I was gone. Um, I had left and we had parted ways in 2007. Yeah. Uh, Deep South had moved to FCW. I went to work for uh, FedEx. You know, I had a family and, you yep. know, we, we needed insurance. So I went to work for FedEx. It was a great insurance deal. Um, <laughs> but I got a call from, I actually got, my call came from the USA Network through the okay. WWE. So when I was doing Tough Enough with uh, Stone Cold and Booker and Trish, I was working for USA. I wasn't working for WWE. Oh, really? Yeah. And then, you know, we were all together and it was all for the WWE product, but I wasn't necessarily working uh, for the WWE. So after that season of Tough Enough, um, I got a phone call from uh, Triple H and Paul yep. called me and said, hey, man, we're in Nashville. You, you know, you want to come down? I said, sure, I'll take a ride. And I was living in Georgia. He said, no, we'll fly. I said, no, I'll drive because it is, I got older and smarter in the business. I knew if something didn't go right. I've got to wait for a plane or something. This way I drove myself. <laughs> if I didn't yeah. have a conversation, I could leave and vice versa. But I met with Paul. He told me what he'd had in mind about starting to look into Tampa and the system they had in place now. Um, but he he had made me uh, a TV producer. So I was back uh, behind the scenes on TV, helping the younger talent, working on the TV product and behind the scenes and, you know, all that. And when I was done, I'd fly down to Tampa for a couple of days watch what they were doing because Dr. Tom's, you know, legendary. So I was watching Dr. Tom and what he was doing and it wasn't what he was doing. They wanted to know what the system was doing. So uh, as I, I, and I think I was a producer for about a year, but I kept going in and out of Tampa. And then uh, Paul had said, Hey, we want you to, we want you to take over the whole system. And I was like, what? Like not just be a trainer, take over the whole system. So that all came from tough enough because I think people got to see, a side of me and my regard and respect for the business and, and, you know, the training part and the things that, that we did. And that was all, you know, and because it, like I said, it was real, it wasn't just fabricated for a show. So, and that's why Al look at Al Snow. You, you can't, it's not a character. The, the guy's one of the greatest trainers ever. And that's yeah. why now he owns OVW and is doing the things he's doing because if you're that kind of wrestler and, and, and coach, then you're, you're always going to be doing things like that. Yeah. If you were to say, pick maybe three total packages that you've trained through, say, Deep South and NXT, who are those three guys or girls? 
Total package, meaning what? In what aspect? Meaning athlete, <clears throat> performer, character. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to think I had something to do, however small, with The Miz. Yeah. But The Miz was prepared. Um, I, another guy that impressed me from day one was MVP. Had the look, had the ability, could talk like no other. I mean, there were so many guys. Um, and, and then you go to FCW and you had, geez, they were loaded. By the time I got there, they were loaded and we just kind of changed some things a little bit. You have Bray Wyatt, you had Xavier Woods, you got Big E, you got Seth Rollins, you got, you know, Moxley who's gone on to do his thing. I mean, and that's the same in every territory that I ever I had ever been to. That you know, they had Eugene and 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 all those guys in OBW. Um, you know, Nick Dinsmore and all, and people were just coming out of the woodwork. So it was a, uh, it'd be hard to put the top three, but I think yeah. Miz and MVP are definitely definitely two of all around best. You know, okay. and I think Doc, Doc Gallows has got to be up there too. Yeah, I'll give you a more fun top three. Okay. If you were stranded on a desert island and you needed to pick three wrestlers to accompany you, who would they be? I would take Santino. <laughs> because I think there's a lot he could do. to One, to make me laugh and forget I was stranded on an island. I would take Hornswoggle to do all okay. the dirty work, you know, because I, I wouldn't want to do the dirty work. And I think I would take um, Big Show. Okay, so you'd be safe then as well. Yeah, so if nothing else, I could hide from everybody else, yeah. What do you think, or do you keep in touch with watching the product today, and what do you think about it? I I, I still watch it. I still keep in touch with a lot of people. I'm a big fan. Like I said, once you're in it, you can't let go. Yeah. <clears throat> That's why I still tour and do seminars and appearances and stuff when I can, but I'm I'm – I'm so impressed with everybody working this past year or so with no audience and having to acclimate themselves to that. Yeah. That I, you know, as we came into the business, our trainers had us wrestle with a towel, wrestle the invisible man, wrestle a broom. And you said, when would that ever come into play? Well, guess what? This pandemic era, these, these men and women were wrestling in front of no one and putting out products that were unbelievable so I, I'm a big fan of, of everybody who's doing it across the board around the world. And now that it's opening up, I think it's really – I think that the younger guys who have never been in front of a crowd have a little bit of an eye-opening experience coming because now they're sure. really going to work. And I think the veteran guys and, and the girls are really going to take a deep breath and start to have some fun fun again. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's a it's an absolute credit to them that they have kept going over yeah. the last over the last year. But the, from a visual point of view, say from me or you, maybe watching it as a fan, wrestling, what this one thing is definitely taught is it's not the same without the audience. It's it, the, those and WWE and now AEW mm -hmm. always reminds the the people of that. Without them, they're they're nothing, and it's never become more prevalent than now that what that crowd drives you that crowd feeds you so if you're blown up that crowd reminds you if you're in front of 15 16,000 people you're going man you're going to give it all you got now you got to dig down deep in yourself so nxt's done incredible AEW's done incredible wwe uh ring of honor who's done it new japan everybody who's done it 
has mm-hmm. been incredible. And now that they're opening up, I'm, I'm excited for them all. And I think we're going to see a little bit of separation in each company of who's really going to stand out now. You know what I mean? Because that yeah. crowd's going to let you know if you've been as good as you thought you were during the pandemic. There, there's nowhere to hide now in a few weeks, I yeah. don't think. <laughs> what do you think of AEW? Do you think that Vince would see that as competition or do you think it's just a completely separate product? I, I think it's a separate product, but I think you have to look at it as competition. Um, with no competition, there's no desire to me. Mm-hmm. If you're the only team in the NFL, who are you playing for? Yeah. If you're the only baseball team on the, you know, who are you playing for? You're gonna. It's the same crowd. It's the same thing. Like, how do you cut your chops? How do you get better if there's no competition? If and, and more so for the for the talent now because you know all the releases and stuff that come up all the time. What yeah. what's your worth? You know. So you got to be looking at it. I think it's competition. But you got to remember what's what's AEW in in their second year or something like that. Yeah. So in two years they've done a lot. Have they done a lot to to call it competition? I think so. I I would look at it as competition. What do you think of that product, Bill? I I like it. I think that, I think it's young. I think there's a lot of things that me as a coach I would see, and probably people would hate me for pointing out, yeah. but like little things, you know. But. I, I'm a firm believer if you critique something, it's different than criticizing it. So I still watch as a coach. I love to watch and what people do because they're all amazing athletes. But then you watch and go, okay, longevity. Can you do this in four years? Can you do this in three years? Can people still buy into what you're doing? And can you still surprise me at the, you know, the big events and things like that? So I think AEW is still in that, in that crawl, walk, run stage. So a lot of the, a lot of the cats are are cutting their teeth and and figuring it out, and I think everybody in the back is doing a good job in helping them, you know. But we're I'm of I'm of the mind of okay, let's fix it now, you know. And not yeah. that not that I could fix it or anything needs to be fixed, but those little things, the little instead of moving, 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 give me a chance. Now there's an audience. Let those people swallow that and understand what you did before the next cool thing you're gonna do, you know. Yeah, maybe it's a bit too fast-paced at times. But Sometimes, they're a, yeah. 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 They're doing a good job, I think, and some people do give out about this. They're bringing guys like Sting and people like that in. But these guys have got so much experience that these young guys that have never been around stars like these can learn so much yeah. from those people. Yeah, and, and you know, Sting's worth is going to come out now. Now that they're mm-hmm. going to live events, and not that he wasn't worth any before. I'm a huge fan. Him and I yeah. had a lot of good times. He had a good matches. He was always... Uh, great to me, but I think I think now that experience, the Christian Cage, the Mark Henry, the you know Paul White, um, all the guys behind the scenes, Billy Gunn and Dean Malenko and all those guys, now they're going to be doing live events. Now's where that learning comes. Arn Anderson, now's where they get because you're doing TV once a week. Yeah, you're only going to be shown and taught and you know explained so many things. Now you're going to get to repeat yourself a little bit and find those things that work. And don't work, and and that's when the stings and guys like that are going to become invaluable. Yeah, live shows, house events, and things like that yeah. are good for, yeah. for practice, and it gets guys to have kind of a little bit more fun. I I found from attending. Yeah, absolutely. Have, have you ever got to wrestle over here in Ireland? I was in I was in Dublin a couple of times. Right, there was the Hard Rock over there that was connected to the big arena. Is that still there? Down is it the. The uh, the arena on the Docklands, is it? It, it we, could we, be, yeah. You were here yeah, with I, WWE, were you? 
Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but you didn't get to wrestle here. I uh, I didn't get to do a lot of. It was one of those trips where we were doing like the whole Europe thing. So yeah. I'm a I'm a big. I like to go out and see things. I I didn't get to any pubs. I didn't get to really like meet the people. So it was like you know you're there. It's media. It's this. It's that. Um, but I, I love Ireland. You know, half half my family's Irish, half's Italian. So I was, really? I was, yeah, I was looking forward to it, but I never got to truly experience it. So maybe one of these days. Maybe one day you'll have to come back and have a few pints of Guinness. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, Bill, to wrap things up, then we're going to talk a bit about the motivational speaking and what you do at the moment. Okay. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Yeah. So you know. Um, you know, life's always changing, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you do, you have these things that come up. And um, back in 2015, um, my youngest daughter was killed by a drunk driver. Um, she was 20 years old. She was on her way home. And the guy was a repeat offender. And everything had stopped after that. No work. And when I say no work, I haven't, I haven't held a, a job now in six years. I've Put all efforts into making sure that uh, my daughter and others don't become a statistic. So we started speaking to high school students, which turned into elementary and middle school students and, and law enforcement and corporate events and, and getting on the community. And we started a foundation that's really starting to take off. And we're making, you know, we're making changes in legislature here in Florida and across the country. And you come to find out who you really are. You know, sometimes in, we get caught up in our, in our career and our job and what we're doing. And we forget that there's other things. And, and unfortunately my family was reminded very quickly of how things change. So I, I go with, with my daughter, Carrie Ann, and I, she's with me everywhere I go. And we speak to hundreds and thousands of people, every event we go to, um, uh, and we talk about the decisions we make and how they affect other people. So it's not just about drunk and impaired and distracted driving. It's about the social media. It's about bullying. It's about texting. It's about all the things that that come into play that we take for granted. You and I just met for the first time. Yeah. And that'd be like me. That'd be like me treating you badly. And then all of a sudden next month I need something and you're the only person who can help me. Well, what are you going to remember? You're going to remember that Bill DeMott was a, a schmuck, right? That I wasn't worth it. And I want these kids to know that everything they do affects everyone on the ball field, in the classroom, in church, at the dinner table. So we talk about no more empty seats because we're losing far too many people, innocent people, because of decisions that are being made. And all of that happens for me, why I'm able to stand up there and try to speak to people is because of wrestling, because I spent so much time in front of hundreds of thousands of people and I, I was prepared. And I feel like that's, it sounds corny to say, but that's been my journey. And that's why I was on the journey I was on because yeah. I knew I didn't know he knew. And so I, I, I get up every day um, and I run the foundation and we go and speak. First, it was just locally in Florida, and now it's nationally. And we go and make sure that people know how important they are, especially kids and the youth. But, you know, we talk to sports teams, and we talk to all kinds of people 
um, because we all have issues that we deal with that nobody knows about. So we want to get out there and, and let them know how important they are to others and that every decision we make affects someone else. You have a, a brand new baby boy, right? Yep. And so you your life changed. Now you're now instead of what you did before the baby, you start thinking about okay, how's this affect my family now? And and that's the way we should all be thinking. As entertainers and wrestlers, we have a, a bigger role than people recognize because they look to us for things. So if we're out there raising hell and getting in trouble, then that becomes the norm. And that's not the message we should be sending. So while we talk about drunk, impaired, and distracted driving and try to change that culture, we want people to know that every everything that comes out of my mouth, even with here with you, is important because someone's listening. They're going to listen to that, and then they're going to decide to do or make an assumption about who I am, right, and who you are and, yeah. and how these things go. So in, in 2015, everything changed. And for so for the past six years, I spent all my time running the foundation and then getting out in front of people and working with law enforcement and, and things like that. And I appreciate you asking about that. Yeah. Do you get a sense of pride out doing it, Bill? I'm proud of my daughter. I'm proud of who she is, uh, the message that she allows me to speak for. I'm proud of my family who gets up every day and relives this with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to find the words every time we speak because it's not easy and it's not something I look forward to, but I know it has to be done. And, you know, while it'll never change what's happened to my family, it's going to save somebody else. And, you know, as wrestlers, you're in the business to make people smile and take their minds off of everything else. And, and I, I just want people to know that there's more out there for them than just making one silly you know, decision and, and it affecting the rest of their life or someone else's. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that was a very nice way to wrap things up and I will put all the links for the foundation in this oh, video. Thank you, brother. No problem. Bill. It was an absolute I look, I look pleasure. forward to talking to you, man. Anytime. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. We'll catch up again. Maybe uh, when you're kind of, cause I'm sure you haven't been on the road, even doing the talks as much as you'd like. Right. Yeah. We here. just started back. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we'll touch base in a few months and see how everything's going. Right on. Hey, all the best with the family, and uh, I appreciate you so much, man. Yeah, I'll see you over here for a pint of Guinness in a couple of years. You got it. Cheers. Thank you, brother. Cheers, man.